Good morning. This is the uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearing on the nominations of Ms. Pamela Bates of Virginia to be the U.S. Representative to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development with the rank of Ambassador, Christopher Landau of Maryland to be the U.S. Ambassador to Mexico, Ms. Jennifer Nordquist of Virginia to be the U.S. Executive Director for the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, and Mr. Elliot Pedroza of Florida to be U.S. Executive Director of the Inter-American Development Bank. I would also add that Mr. Pedroza, who is a Florida native, is currently serving as the alternate Inter-American Development Bank Executive Director and was previously a principal shareholder with a law firm of greenberg Traurig, where he was the chair of the Miami firm's litigation department. This is the second hearing for you, so welcome back. Ms. Nordquist is currently the Chief of Staff at the Council of Economic Advisors. She was previously the Chief of Staff for the Economics Program at the Brookings Institution. Christopher Landau, nominated to be U.S. Ambassador to Mexico, will play a critical role in a country with strong ties to the United States. I had the opportunity to speak to him. We had a great conversation about the challenges and opportunities in the relationship between the U.S. and our southern neighbors in Mexico. Ms. Bates served for 24 years as a career member of the United States Foreign Service before assuming her current role as partner at Securitas Global Risk Solutions in Wayne, Pennsylvania. 2017 is when she joined. I welcome the nominees here with us today. Thank you, all four of you, for the willingness to serve and continue to serve our country. In con if confirmed, each of you will have important roles and responsibilities in advancing our nation's foreign policy objectives and in protecting our national security interests as well as our values. Before us are four very different positions that will each help advance economic growth and stability in our own hemisphere and beyond. This will be especially true for those countries in the Western Hemisphere that are undergoing democratic transitions and are taking important steps to improve their economy, security, and bilateral relations with the United States. Let's start with Mexico, where the U.S. and Mexico share not just a long border, but a long history and a critical relationship on a number of fronts. Last year, Mexico elected a candidate from the Movimiento Regeneración Nacional Morena Party that was created in 2014. President uh, Obrador's election broke with the two traditional parties in Mexico that had ruled Mexican politics for years. In the coming days, it will be important to find areas where our cooperation together can be strengthened. We are partners in security cooperation and intelligence sharing as a result of the Merida Initiative. The U.S. and Mexico are trading partners, with the U.S. being Mexico's most important export market for goods. Eighty percent of Mexico's exports come to the United States. We should continue to find ways to enhance our cooperation on existing initiatives to fight the production and distribution of opioids and illicit fentanyl that cause far too many deaths in the U.S. each year. We also need to work with Mexico to improve trade practices to ensure that it remains a fair trade partner with the U.S. The Mexican government has committed to increasing government subsidies, which by the way is in violation of WTO rules, to promote more agricultural acreage and greenhouse and irrigation infrastructure with the intent to export more fruits and vegetables into the U.S. across a longer marketing season. Mexican producers are dumping produce in select U.S. markets at select times of the year to try to outmaneuver U.S. anti-dumping laws. Concerns are rising with respect to the role transnational criminal organizations are playing to commingle drug shipments and launder money with legitimate Mexican agricultural operations. We also need to engage the Mexican government on Venezuela and we should work with, with the Mexican and Guatemalan governments to bolster security in the border areas between these two countries. Finally, the U.S. needs to press the government of, of Mexico and have conversations about ongoing human rights violations in the country, such as the targeting and the murder of journalists. 
In general, for all of our nominees, your positions representing the U.S. and countries and at multilateral organizations are essential to advancing our objectives worldwide. The ongoing challenges posed around the world by increasingly aggressive governments, such as the, gov the Chinese Communist government and the Russian government under Vladimir Putin, make the case even further for U.S. engagement and leadership in the world and in organizations such as the three that you are nominated here for today. We must find ways to support developing countries, our friends, and our allies who are targets of Chinese economic bullying and pressure. We have a real opportunity to strengthen the U.S. role and partnership on an array of important foreign policy matters. Your roles will be critical to ensuring that U.S. interests are advanced here in our own region and across the world. Once again, thank you and your families for your commitment to our country, and now I'll recognize the ranking member for his opening comments. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, for convening uh, this hearing. It's interesting that we have a Marylander and a Floridian and two Virginians that happen to be thrown into the mix. But we welcome all of you here. Uh, as I told Mr. Landau, that if I was not ranking, I would have been pleased to introduce him to the committee as a Marylander. I'm, I think your background, your family background, uh, you, as I understand, you've lived in Canada, Paraguay, Chile, and Venezuela. Your father was involved in diplomatic services, so I think that's going to be important uh, background in regards to serving as ambassador to, to Mexico. I welcome all four of the nominees here today, and I thank you for your willingness to, in some cases, continue to serve our country, in some cases, to make this commitment of public service during an extremely difficult time. And I very much recognize that you cannot do this without the support of your families. So we thank your families for being willing to share uh, your, your significant other uh, in public service. Uh, as the chairman has mentioned, all four of these positions are critically important to our national security and our economic welfare. So uh, the, each of these positions is, in its own right are important. The ambassador to Mexico is particularly of importance to us uh, on the, on the um, Western Hemisphere subcommittee that Senator Rubio and I chair in a ranking. I know this is a full committee hearing, uh, but we are particularly uh, concerned about uh, the relationship with Mexico. It's been too long without a confirmed ambassador. So, Mr. Chairman, I hope that we can expedite this nomination uh, and get it moving, because I think it's important that we have a confirmed ambassador in our neighbor, Mexico. I did have the opportunity to meet with Mr. Landau. I enjoyed our conversation. I went over a lot of the issues that I think are critically important. The chairman's already mentioned some. The U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement is going to be uh, is here now. Uh, it's going to be submitted to us very shortly, and the Congress is going to have to take that up, and your role in that regard could be very, very important. Uh, we've gone over the migration issues. Uh, the challenge is going to be greater. I was in Mexico City not too long ago. I met with my counterparts in the Mexican Senate. Uh, they were outraged by President Trump's language and the concept of a medieval wall. That's going to make your job more challenging, and we look forward to how you can use diplomacy so that we can work together with Mexico to deal with the migration issues, which is critically important. Mexico is confronting uh, criminal elements and drug activity uh, that we have to work in partnership. One of the areas that I asked every nominee for ambassador to be committed to, and I asked you in my office, is to um, advance human rights. Uh, there are challenges in Mexico on human rights, no question about it. It is not safe to be a journalist. It's not safe to be a social activist in a large part of Mexico. And we would expect that you will find ways that we can uh, advance the protection of 
these values in our bilateral relationship with Mexico. As the chairman pointed out, there is a new administration in Mexico, a different party. So I think it does present opportunities, and we look forward to how you believe you can advance those interests on behalf of the United States. In regards to uh, Elliot Bedroso, the executive director for the Inter-America Development Bank, a very important position to improve lives in Latin America and the Caribbean. The challenges, Venezuela is a challenge for our whole hemisphere uh, in the economic impact of the migration issues, people leaving Venezuela, the economic impact of the humanitarian crisis there, and the unresolved issues in the Northern Triangle that uh, some of us are working very hard to develop the type of partnership between the United States and the Northern Triangle to, to deal with their security issues, to deal with their economic issues, to deal with their uh, basic problems of good governance. Uh, so that's an issue that we need to explore as to how we can use the International American Development Bank uh, to meet those types of challenges. It's interesting to focus, as I'm sure all of us are aware, is for social inclusion and equality, productivity, and innovation and economic integration. These are principles we all agree on, and I welcome how you believe we can use the bank in that regard. As is true with all the bank, international bank activities, the player that is presenting the greatest interest to us is China. So China's involvement in this hemisphere is one in which we would welcome your thoughts as to how the bank can deal with that opportunity or challenge the way you look at it. The executive director of the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, Jennifer Norquist, uh, again, a, a position that is critically important. It's the largest lender among the uh, world banks. Uh, we have been presented a plan for recapitalization. The administration is, is supportive of the recapitalization with reform. The decision will be Congress to make on recapitalization and reform, and we welcome your comments as to how you see the reforms taking, bank, taking place within the bank and how the recapitalization, which falls heaviest on the United States because of our share, is in our national security interest. In regards to the OECD, uh, Pamela Bates, first of all, thank you for your career service. That's, that's a, a commitment that you've made, moving on to an extremely important position the OECD is committed to market economies backed by democratic institutions, and that is being challenged in our regions as well as globally. So how does the OECD protect market economies and democratic institutions in the work that you do? You have key interest today from China, again. How do you deal with that? Brazil, India, Indonesia, South Africa. The challenges are great on the global community and OECD can play an extremely important role, and I look forward to our conversation in regards to those matters. Bottom line, four very important positions, and we thank each of you for being willing to serve. Thank you. Ms. Bates, we'll begin with you. Thank you for being here. Chairman Rubio, thank Ranking Member Cardin, and distinguished members of the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations. It is an honor and a privilege to appear before you today as the nominee to serve as the representative of the United States of America to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD. I deeply appreciate the trust and confidence placed in me by President Trump and Secretary Pompeo by nominating me for this responsibility. On a personal note, and as a prior member of the Career Foreign Service, I would like to thank the many family members, friends, and colleagues 
who have encouraged me in my journey, which has led to this room today. I would like to thank my husband and son for adapting to and making the most of serving overseas with the Department of State. I would especially like to thank our son, who bravely attended new schools, sometimes in a foreign language, and who skillfully and diplomatically enjoys correcting my French pronunciation. I would also like to acknowledge my family members who could not be here today, many of whom served our wonderful country. My two grandfathers who fought in World War I in the Army, and my uncles who fought in World War II in Korea. My two grandmothers and my aunts who worked tirelessly on the home front. My father, a proud graduate of the United States Naval Academy, and my mother, the first person that I know of in my family to endeavor to take the Foreign Service exam. I would also like to thank my brother, a colonel in the United States Marine Corps, and his family, who are currently serving our country. My family, and especially my parents, instilled in me a deep appreciation for the freedoms that we enjoy as citizens of the United States, as well as the duty to serve our country. Finally, I would also like to thank many friends and colleagues, some of whom are here today. You have helped me to be a better diplomat, and if confirmed, representative of our great nation. Mr. Chairman, I believe that my life experience, including more than two decades of experience with the Department of State, has prepared me well to take on this important challenge. As a Foreign Service officer, I devoted most of my career to advancing U.S. economic interests across the globe, from working to secure greater access to international markets for U.S. firms, to supporting energy security and promoting U.S. trade and investment, I have gained a deep understanding of the intersection between government and the private sector, and the role international organizations can play in advancing U.S. interests. Through my work at the OECD, the International Energy Agency, and the World Trade Organization, I have worked with like-minded countries to build support for policies that benefit the United States. I have also spent time in the private sector, an experience that will be valuable to ensuring that private sector perspectives inform the work of the U.S. mission to the OECD. Since its founding in 1961, the OECD has played a unique role among international organizations as a valuable source of market-friendly, evidence-based research and policy advice. Through economic analysis, peer reviews, and development of policy standards, the OECD encourages sound economic policies that support economic growth and open markets for U.S. trade and investment. The OECD also serves as a platform to convene like-minded governments to cooperate on approaches to common challenges. It provides a venue where networks of regulators and government officials agree on market-enhancing rules on export credits, anti-bribery, sovereign wealth funds, international investment and competition policy. This work helps to promote U.S. job creation and expand international trade, investment and financing, and create opportunities for U.S. business and workers. The National Security Strategy calls on international organizations to be more accountable. If confirmed, I will work with other member countries to make the OECD accountable, transparent, member-driven, and cost-effective. I will advocate for improving the OECD's working methods to ensure member-driven prioritization, increase efficiency, and improve management practices to bring the OECD to the forefront of leading international organizations. If confirmed, I will press the OECD to focus on its core work of improving the functioning of markets and governments, encouraging fair and efficient systems of taxation, competition, and investment, reinforcing mechanisms for combating corruption, and promoting the openness, integrity, and transparency of business and governments. I will ensure that the OECD's leadership responds to members' concerns rather than pursuing its own agenda. 
Over the past 50 years, the OECD has expanded its membership from the original 20 countries to 36. It is currently considering additional members. We need to proceed carefully to support qualified candidates without undermining the core work of the OECD. The OECD derives its global relevance not from universal membership, but from the quality and impact of its policy instruments and best practice recommendations. If confirmed, I look forward to consulting with this committee and its staff, both here and in Washington, both here in Washington and during the visits of congressional delegations to Paris. I thank the committee for this opportunity to appear today. If confirmed, my primary goal will be to leverage our participation in the OECD to advance U.S. economic interests. I would be happy to answer your questions. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much. Mr. Landau. And distinguished members of this committee, I'm honored to appear before you today as the nominee for ambassador to Mexico. I'm very grateful to both President Trump and Secretary Pompeo for their trust and confidence. And I appreciate the time that the members of this committee and your staff have spent with me. The confirmation process has only reaffirmed my respect for our founders' wisdom in requiring the advice and consent of the Senate for ambassadorial nominations. If confirmed, I look forward to working closely with all of you. This hearing brings my life full circle. As an eight-year-old boy, I attended my father's hearing as nominee for ambassador to Paraguay. I'm here today, 47 years later, with my wife, Caroline, and our two children, Nathaniel and Julia. I'm incredibly grateful for their love and support, as well as their enthusiasm for this opportunity to serve our great country. My dad, George Landau, was a career Foreign Service officer. For him and for our family, the Foreign Service was more than just a job. It was the path to the American dream. Both of my parents were immigrants who came to this country with nothing. My father fled Austria when the Nazis took over in 1938 and made his way to Colombia, South America, and then to New York City. He became a US citizen, an army intelligence officer in World War II. He later joined the Foreign Service and ultimately served as US ambassador to Paraguay, Chile, and Venezuela. He was nominated by and served under presidents of both political parties. My parents devoted their lives to strengthening the bonds between the US and Latin America. I wouldn't be here today, but for the opportunities that this country, and particularly the Foreign Service, afforded my family. I can think of no greater honor or privilege than the opportunity to represent our country in Mexico and to continue my family's mission of building bridges between the US and Latin America. I grew up in the region and speak Spanish fluently. I focused on Latin American studies as an undergraduate and fully intended to join the Foreign Service myself. Ironically, it was my dad who urged me to go to law school and get a professional degree. My 30-year career in the law, in which I had the opportunity to brief and argue cases in the US Supreme Court, all of the federal courts of appeals, and many state courts, has given me a profound respect for the rule of law, the importance of resolving disputes civilly, and the dignity of the individual. If confirmed, I'll bring these passions to my job in Mexico. Our relationship with Mexico is one of paramount importance and complexity. We share a nearly 2,000 mile border 
from San Diego, California to Brownsville, Texas. More than 10% of all Americans, some 36 million people, are of Mexican heritage. Our cultures have grown increasingly intertwined from the Starbucks in Mexico City to Hollywood blockbusters directed by Mexicans. There's a lot to celebrate in our relationship with Mexico that often gets lost amidst discussion of the challenges. If confirmed, I'll continue this administration's focus on a number of key priorities. The first will be to ensure the rule of law at the border. That's obviously a huge job that involves many agencies. My role, if confirmed, will be to foster cooperation with the Mexican people and authorities. Neither country can solve the challenge of illegal immigration alone, and I'm convinced that we can find common ground. Another key priority, if confirmed, will be the protection of the American people. The scourge of illegal drugs is devastating both our communities and Mexican communities. Again, I see this as an area where we share a common interest with Mexico and pledge, if confirmed, to strengthen our partnership in fighting drugs. I'd also like to underscore the importance of protecting the many millions of U.S. citizens who live in or visit Mexico. Finally, I'd like to emphasize the importance of our economic relationship with Mexico. One of the most dramatic changes in my lifetime has been the integration of the U.S. and Mexican economies. When I was in college, the leading book on U.S.-Mexico relations was called Distant Neighbors. We used to have our backs to each other. Now, the leading book is called Vanishing Frontiers, and Mexico recently became our largest trading partner in the world. This transformation offers benefits, but it also presents challenges. If confirmed, I look forward to working for passage of the USMCA and to promote fair and reciprocal trade. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Cardin, and distinguished members of this committee, our relationship with Mexico is unique in its direct impact on the security and prosperity of the American people. If confirmed, I pledge to be a good and faithful steward of that relationship. Thank you. Thank you. Ms. Norquist. Chairman Rubio, Ranking Member Cardin, as well as full committee Chairman Risch and Ranking Member Menendez, and all distinguished members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to testify before you today. I'd also like to thank President Trump for nominating me to serve as Executive Director of the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, which forms a major component of the World Bank. I would not be sitting here today were it not for the love and support of my family, who are both literally and figuratively behind me. My husband and my rock, Nels, uh, and since this is a Foreign Service panel, I'll also mention that he was in the Foreign Service and a Naval officer and uh, is currently in the intelligence community. Um, our three children, Annika, who flew in from Stanford University to be here, Lars and Britt Marie, who both are happily missing school today. Uh, my parents, uh, my father, Henry Berenstein, is here visiting from New York. Uh, my in-laws, Myron and Barbara Nordquist, who are your constituents, Mr. Cardin, Senator Cardin. Uh, and I have a few friends and colleagues in the audience uh, who are here or watching online today, so thank you, everybody, for your support. As this committee sees every day, the world faces many difficult and complex issues. These challenge the World Bank group as never before. 
The United States has played a leading role in the bank since its founding at Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, 75 years ago, and I look forward to keeping the, bank, keeping the U.S. actively engaged in the bank, using our voice and vote to advance the bank's mission to ameliorate poverty around the globe, while also ensuring that the bank works in the best interests of U.S. taxpayers. I've had a deep interest in responding to poverty ever since I was a graduate student in Chicago, volunteering at Cabrini Green, then one of the nation's most dangerous housing developments. Later, while living and working in Thailand, I helped lead a national health education campaign to stem the AIDS epidemic that was ravaging the country at all socioeconomic levels. Subsequently, in government service, I helped work to rebuild the Gulf Coast after Hurricane Katrina, which hit the lowest income residents particularly hard, and I continued to work on related issues while at HUD. Research into the causes and impact of poverty was a large part of my portfolio at Brookings, where I spent almost nine years in the economic studies program. In my current role at the Council of Economic Advisors, I counsel on the development of policies that promote opportunity and economic growth based on the latest economic research and analysis. I also have a background in macroeconomics, evidence-based policy, and banking and finance regulation, and plan to bring these valuable perspectives to my work should you confirm me. Poverty remains an intractable problem. If there were easy policy solutions, they would have been implemented long, long ago. In the U.S., we have made a lot of progress since the war on poverty was launched over half a century ago. Both bilaterally and through multilateral institutions, such as the World Bank, the U.S. has played a leading role in supporting the progress that the, West, the rest of the world has made in lifting people out of poverty and generating economic growth. The World Bank Group's loans and grants have helped diminish extreme poverty and improved human capital and health outcomes in countless countries, helping establish the necessary ingredients for prosperity. These efforts not only allow people to lead better, more productive, and fulfilled lives, but they also open up markets to American firms. 40% of our exports go to the developing world, not only supporting American jobs, but also promoting stability and, of course, peace. The World Bank now faces the challenge of promoting development and stability in an environment where other lenders, both bilateral and multilateral, push developing countries into unsustainable debt and dependence, forcing these sovereign borrowers to accept poor quality projects that do not meet high quality environmental and social standards. In that regard, it is difficult to understand how any nation can be both a lender to the developing world while also taking advantage of the taxpayer-supported loans that the bank provides at the same time. If you allow me the privilege to serve as U.S. Executive Director, my goal would be to ensure the bank rises to these challenges. If Congress approves the capital increase requested in the President's budget, that means implementing the reforms that the U.S. negotiated as part of that package. These include stronger financial discipline, constraints on overhead costs at the bank itself, and focusing resources away from more developed countries and towards the less developed, more vulnerable ones, which is indeed the bank's core mission. These reforms should ensure that the bank does not ask for another capital increase in the near future. It would be an honor and a privilege to put my background in economic policy and government to work, ensuring that the World Bank implements these reforms and develops a laser-like focus on sound, sustainable projects that eliminate extreme poverty, empower women, and help prevent violence and conflict. Thank you for this opportunity to testify before you today, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Mr. Pedrosa. Thank you, Chairman Rubio and Ranking Member Cardin. Uh, thank you to Chairman Risch, Ranking Member Menendez, and all of the members of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. I was privileged last year to be advanced by this committee and confirmed by the full Senate 
to represent the United States on the board of the Inter-American Development Bank as its alternate executive director. Today I'm before you again as President Trump's nominee to serve as executive director. I was humbled to be nominated and confirmed last year, doubly so now. I want to thank the President and Secretary Mnuchin for their continued confidence in me, and I'd like to thank each of the distinguished members of this committee for giving me the opportunity to present my qualifications for your consideration as you discharge your important constitutional role in providing advice and hopefully giving consent on the nominations before you today. I also want to thank my family for their love and support. My wife Nilda is here with me. She is my inspiration, my hero, and my love. Our nine-month-old twins, Emma Rose Adlin and Elias Augustus, are at home today, and are though, although they are still far too young to watch this hearing live, during the many, many times that I plan to bore them with it when they're older, I have a message for them. Emma Rose, Elias, mom and dad love you very much. We're proud of you today, and we will be proud of you every single day as you grow up. I also want to thank my parents, Elier and Inez, and my in-laws, Ricardo and Nilda, who are live streaming this hearing back home in Florida. Chairman Rubio and Ranking Member Menendez, my parents, just like yours, risked everything to escape tyranny so that their son could be born and live in the land of freedom and opportunity. This country welcomed my family and yours and thousands like them offering liberty, equality, and the opportunity for prosperity. I'm forever grateful to my family and my country for the life they've given me. Over the past year, I've had the honor of representing my country on the board of the IDB. During that time and throughout my 18 years of legal practice in the private sector, I was blessed by the opportunity to work with stakeholders throughout the Americas from Mexico down to the Southern Cone. This is a region blessed with incredible promise and opportunity, with rich natural resources, and with warm, dynamic people. But I've seen firsthand some of the challenges that the region faces. In too many places, weak institutions, unchecked corruption, political instability, and economic uncertainty throttle investment and prevent sustained growth. Since the IDB's founding 60 years ago, millions have been lifted out of poverty, but tens of millions in our region still live below the poverty line. The power of free markets and democratic institutions have together unleashed prosperity on unprecedented levels, but still too many citizens of the Americas are deprived of their basic rights to life, liberty, and economic opportunity by corrupt and oppressive governments, violent criminal gangs, and the crushing weight of economic hopelessness. As Americans, it's in our vital national interest to run towards these challenges, not away from them and to work to help our neighbors create, nourish, and sustain stable, prosperous democracies in every corner of our shared hemisphere. If I'm fortunate enough to be confirmed again today, I will devote myself to continue to work in partnership with my colleagues, both in the executive branch and the Congress, and particularly with this committee and your staff, to ensure that the IDB continues to be an important part of the solution to regional problems. I firmly believe that American leadership and investment both public and private, can change outcomes in the region for the better. And I hope to continue to have the opportunity to work with you and your staffs to achieve that goal. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Members Menendez and Cardin, I thank you again for the opportunity to appear before you and the other members of this committee, and I welcome your questions. Thank you.
Thank you. Um, Mr. Landau, let me just begin with, uh, with you. I mean, on, on, I would start out by saying, you know, against some of the conventional wisdom, the relationship with the Oberdor administration has been generally friendly. Um, there are still some key issues, however, in trade disputes and tariffs, uh, immigration and border security issues. Obviously, the decision to remain neutral in the crisis in Venezuela, which are potential or existing irritants. Um, in fairness, the Mexican government uh, and the, the uh, Obrador administration has accommodated U.S. migration and border security policies and done so despite significant domestic criticism that it's received for agreeing to allow migrants, uh, asylum seekers, to await our immigration proceedings while still in Mexico and, and for rapidly increasing deportations. So in light of all this, uh, if confirmed, what do you view are our priorities in our relationship with Mexico and what do you view are the areas that we need to improve? The microphone. Yeah. Senator, I think there are three uh, key priorities that I would focus on and I was a relief to hear that they were the uh, same three priorities that uh, Senator Cardin mentioned in his opening uh, remarks as well and that you alluded to as well, Senator. Uh, the first is to address the common challenge of migration, particularly the Central American caravans uh, that we have been seeing over uh, the last several months. Uh, the, uh, the second is uh, drugs and transnational criminal organizations. And the third is trade. Uh, I think on all of those three issues, uh, Senator, there's a lot of room for us to find common ground with Mexico. Uh, so I think these are uh, challenges, but I think at the same time, uh, if, you, if I'm confirmed, uh, my role as a diplomat will be to look for that common ground, to work with the new administration in Mexico, to listen respectfully to what they have to say, to make our case persuasively to them, and I am optimistic that we can find common ground that yields mutual benefits. Ms. Nordquist, a similar question. What would be your priorities uh, if confirmed as the U.S. Executive Director? Thank you, Senator. Uh, well, the most pressing um, issue before the bank is uh, the capital increase, which I mentioned in my testimony. Um, I think in exchange for uh, the capital increase, which as Senator Cardin mentioned, the United States is, is a very large share of it, um, uh, we have put, the Treasury has negotiated to put in place um, some, some good reforms to ensure that uh, the bank is not overextending itself um, to keep its overhead costs under control, uh, to make sure that um, there's organic capital um, accumulation from the loans and that they can be um, sustained and over a 10-year window. So that would be my, my top priority. Um, also, uh, I would like to focus on uh, better coordination between uh, the World Bank Group and some of our um, you know, bilateral aid organizations within the U.S. government. Ms. Bates, the, what role, of any, can the OECD play alongside the WTO, the World Trade Organization, to reduce the growing tensions in global trade? Thank you for that question, Senator. The OECD has a tradition of data-driven analysis uh, and making neutral policy recommendations. No, but that's so boring. Uh, well, <laughs> what I was going to say, in, in the trade context, <laughs> 
it provides. I'm kidding. I'm joking. That might be, <laughs> somebody might be watching C-SPAN. I'm sorry. Um, in the trade context, the organization has served in a capacity of allowing a forum where like-minded countries can discuss trade issues that is not a negotiating setting. Um, my understanding is that USDR has found this very helpful to air uh, a variety of issues in the OECD setting and to take a look at OECD recommendations, which can then be used to formulate appropriate positions to the trade uh, negotiations that are taking place. And uh, Mr. Pedrosa, the, obviously the, I'm curious your views on the massive effort that, it will, that will be required to help Venezuela rebuild after this catastrophe. They had a, I think it was an 18% contraction last year in their economy, projected to be another 25% this year. Some estimates are running in the 60, 70 billion dollar range to rebuild a completely uh, and archaic and non-functioning electric grid. There's a lot of work to be done. People view Venezuela as a wealthy country with a lot of oil resources, but there, it requires infrastructure to utilize that to build its future. So what plans are you aware of, or what, what's your view that the, the role that the Inter-American Development Bank can play in that process? Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for the question. I entirely agree with you. We have to get the reconstruction of Venezuela right not only for the sake of the Venezuelans who have been living under a uh, tyrannical and corrupt government for too long uh, and, uh, and who have suffered inhuman levels of uh, poverty. Estimates are that 90% of Venezuelans now live in poverty down from the, what used to be the richest country in the hemisphere. The IDB, I hope, will be a central player in the reconstruction of Venezuela. We are currently the first institution uh, among the multilateral development banks and the IMF that have recognized and accepted a governor and executive director appointed by interim president Juan Guaido. The staff and the teams at the IDB are working closely with Governor Hausman for Venezuela and his executive director on the planning for reconstruction efforts. And the United States government is working closely to understand the information that the IDB has and its plans so that uh, members of the administration are fully briefed on what the IDB uh, is thinking and doing. Certainly the IMF will play a critical role, uh, one would hope, but the IDB can uh, move in and help to improve lives, which is ultimately the core function of the institution. We'll have the opportunity in Venezuela, I hope, to do it, and we have to get it right. Senator Cardin. Uh, again, thank all of our witnesses uh, for your testimony. Mr. Landell, uh, I want to start first with the statement that you made on border uh, issues, that, that the ambassador will, will be to foster cooperation with the Mexican people and authorities. Neither country can solve the challenge of illegal immigration alone, and I'm convinced that we can find common ground. I can tell you that over recent times, when we've co had cooperation between the Mexicans and Americans, we've had much more stable circumstances on our border, and the sharing of information, the working together, working with Mexico on its southern border rather than on our southern border has all been in our uh, interest in dealing with the migration issues. But I can also tell, as I said in my opening statement in my visit to Mexico City, uh, there is some hard feelings uh, between uh, the government officials of Mexico and the United States. So can you just share with me some thoughts as to how you can go about finding that common ground between Mexico and the United States? Absolutely, Senator. If confirmed, uh, my role would be to be a diplomat 
And what a diplomat does is articulates the position of his or her country effectively, uh, communicates that to the Mexican or to the, the, the people of the, the host country, uh, and listens respectfully to what the authorities and the people of the host country say to look for common ground on these issues. Uh, I, I do think that uh, public diplomacy is a very important tool uh, in an ambassador's toolbox, and I look forward, if confirmed, to using that tool to the maximum extent I can. I think uh, establishing personal relationships of trust and confidence down there will be absolutely critical, and getting out to uh, see the Mexican people and, and to forming, again, relationships with the new government will be uh, my top priority. You know, Mexico, being our neighbor, I would just urge you to work with members of Congress and see whether we can't assist you in some of these efforts. We are looking at ways to improving OAS uh, in helping with parliamentary dimensions because I do think uh, engaging us can help you with your diplomatic mission. Just make that offer to you. Senator, I, I couldn't, I appreciate those words. I couldn't agree with you more. Certainly, if I can't find common ground, I think it'll be much harder to find common ground with the Mexicans and with people from other countries if we as Americans can't find common ground amongst ourselves. And again, if confirmed, I can certainly pledge to you that I will do everything I can in that regard, and I certainly look forward to having a very uh, constructive uh, and ongoing uh, relationship with this committee. And I'm going to ask all the nominees in regards to basic human rights issues. So let me just start again with Mr. Landau, uh, and then on my second round, I might get around to the others uh, in regards to human rights. As I mentioned in my opening statement, Mexico has challenges. Every country in the world has challenges. In our bilateral relationships, we hope that we can advance basic values in human rights, good governance, anti-corruption, uh, rule of law. So will you uh, commit to work with this committee to advance human rights in Mexico, particularly the safety of journalists and, and social activists, and, and to work to uh, fight corruption in that country so that we can find ways that we can partner with Mexico in order to advance human rights and to fight the corruption? 100%, Senator. The uh, human rights and support for democracy is a basic pillar of American foreign policy uh, and has been so uh, across administrations of both political parties uh, here in our country. Uh, and I certainly come to this job, if confirmed, uh, with a passion for uh, the values that you just mentioned in terms of the rule of law from my own professional background. Uh, I've litigated First Amendment cases. I understand the value, uh, the values that you just spoke of, and uh, I'm very committed to upholding them. Thank you. Ms. Bates, you mentioned in your statement that you will do what you can, uh, uh, reinforcing mechanisms for combating corruption and promoting the openness, integrity, transparency of business and governments. OECD stands for market economy, stands for democratic values, and yet we're fighting trends of so many countries where we find the rise of corruption and the weakening of democratic institutions. So how can you use your role to advance those values of open markets and good governance uh, in a way that is consistent with the mission of the OECD? Thank you, Senator, for that question. As you mentioned, on, on, there are a number of issues here 
on which the OECD can help to play a role in advancing accountable and transparent government. Um, for OECD members, as I'm sure the Senator is aware, the, the OECD is home to the Anti-Bribery Convention and all 36 members plus an additional four, four countries who are not members of the OECD um, are, member, are, are party to that treaty, at which uses a peer uh, mechanism to review each other's anti-bribery and anti-corruption efforts. Uh, in terms of developing nations, uh, there's also the Development Advisory Committee, the DAC, which puts out best policy practices and recommendations that countries can adopt to help improve accountability of their government, transparency, and efficient functioning of their government. So there are tools and options available that the U.S. participates in currently that can be used to help uh, ameliorate and, and improve the situation in governments that are, for governments that are facing challenges through these mechanisms at the OECD. I would ask that you would keep us informed as to how you are using those mechanisms to advance good governance, anti-corruption. We are considering legislation in this committee that would establish certain standards for all countries in regards to fighting corruption as we do for the anti-trafficking issues. And I think if you could keep us informed as to how you're using the convention in the OECD, it could be very helpful to us in our work. I would be happy to keep the committee informed. Thank you. Thank you. Senator King. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and congratulations to all the nominees. You're very well qualified for the positions to which you've been nominated. Ms. Bates, since we have a kind of a Latin America theme on this panel, and that's a passionary of mine, I want to begin with you. Uh, Brazil would like to be an OECD member. Recently, Colombia became the third uh, member of the OECD, uh, Colombia, Chile, Mexico, from the Americas. Talk a little bit about the path to accession for a nation like Brazil. In my view, it's a real positive that the OECD is kind of moving out of a sort of just a northern and, and Northern American European body to include more nations from other parts of the world. So just talk a little bit about that. Accession at, thank you, Senator. Accession at the OECD is a process that is agreed to by the current members of the OECD and there are several steps to that process. One of the main goals of that process is to ensure that accession candidates are adopting what is called the OECD acquis. The, the criteria, the policies, the ways of, of governing that um, meet OECD standards. So uh, it's very helpful, helpful for countries that are uh, moving into a, a Western democracy type, type of economy because these roadmaps are very detailed. I believe the one that was for Colombia had over 200 separate items that Colombia uh, needed to engage upon and, and complete in order to be able to join the OECD. So it creates best practices, common standards, uh, and a way of doing things that is, has been tried and true for the most part for the existing members, and it creates like-mindedness. Um, so for the, for the accession process, uh, it is part of the multilateral uh, process within the organization that all members engage on, uh, not only in terms of invitations, but also in terms of evaluating a country's readiness. Thank you. Um, I know you, you have not been confirmed for the position yet, and you can't assume anything about confirmation. I know the President Trump has indicated his desire that Brazil would, 
would have that opportunity, and I imagine this will be something that will proceed according to the multilateral process you describe, and, and we would like to continue to just sort of stay in touch about that status, that pro progress. Um, Mr. Lando, congratulations to you. I want to ask you a question about the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. Uh, the ITC issues a report, and then that kind of triggers a congressional a period for Congress to respond, and their report on the pending agreement suggests that the deal will have a marginal positive effect on the American economy. I think marginal because the status quo was NAFTA, and so it wasn't, you know, should we not do it or do the USMCA? It's like compared to NAFTA, what would the effect be? And I think they say it would be a marginal positive agreement. That's good. But they indicate that that's only the case if the deal is effectively enforced. If you are confirmed, what might you tell us about how you would, without engaging in Mexico domestic politics, what could you do as the ambassador to make sure that the commitments made in the agreement, particularly around things like labor and others, are effectively enforced by the Mexican government so that that net positive effect could be realized by Americans? Uh, Senator, that's a very important question. Certainly, uh, the Mexican uh, legislature has just passed very significant labor reforms uh, for Mexico. I think your question uh, highlights the ongoing issue to make sure that those uh, agreements and commitments are implemented. Uh, and uh, if confirmed, I will work closely with this committee, with the U.S. Trade Representative and Ambassador Lighthouser's team to make sure that uh, all of the commitments are, in fact, uh, fully and fairly implemented. Um, I should know the answer to this question. I don't. Is, was the, the net, the, a general way to describe the labor provisions of the renegotiated NAFTA is that Mexico would be required to have provisions that would accord with the ILO, uh, International Labor Standards? Senator, uh, like you, I don't know the ex if they're specifically ILO standards. I know that they are improved labor standards, there are higher wages, at least in certain parts of Mexico, uh, and I can get you the answer to that specific question after the hearing. The, the, I can find that out on my own, uh, but, I, but I appreciate your answer to the general idea that if we don't enforce these, then people not only become cynical about trade deals, they become cynical about trade itself, and we really can't afford to have that happen when so much of the economy relies on trade. Lastly, Mr. Pedrosa, talk a little bit about the IDB. Do we have a sufficient competitive alternative to Chinese investments in the Americas in the IDB now? Thank you for the question, Senator. I think it's a critically important area. It's something that the IDB can do, and it's something that the IDB can do in partnership with the United States. Uh, I was thrilled that uh, the House and Senate passed the BUILD Act last year, doubling the capacity of OPEC and transforming it mm -hmm. into the DFC. I was actually in Colombia with the then president of OPEC uh, on the day that the Senate was voting on the bill. Mm. Uh, they're looking at opportunities for IDB and OPEC to work together. I think that it's critically important that lenders like the IDB, like OPEC, that adhere to international best practices, that are committed to transparency, that are committed to making sure that borrowers do not undertake unsustainable debt letters levels, we gotta work together. We gotta work together to provide a credible alternative to China, and also to help strengthen the institutional capacity in the ministries of the countries that are being approached by China for lending, so that they're better able to protect themselves against predatory lending. Great, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Senator Udo. Thank you. Uh Mr. Chair, um, thank you to all of the panelists here today and the experience that you bring uh, before the committee. And my question directed to uh, Mr. Landau, I want to thank you for meeting 
uh, in my office last week. You obviously have a distinguished uh, legal career that has brought you before the Supreme Court many times, and you've worked on behalf of your clients to solve uh, many issues. Now I've confirmed you will need to bring these skills to the post in Mexico City, a post that I believe is one of the most important, if not the most important for the United States, speaking as a border state senator. Mexico is our southern neighbor, an important trading partner, a country uh, that we share a long and varied history and culture, uh, the United States and Mexico, and the border uh, states in particular have a long history with Mexico, including a long history of inter intermingling and cultural sharing. As a well-respected attorney, you have the opportunity to work with Mexican legal officials at all levels as, as they continue to reform their judiciary. Uh, this work will help Mexico, Mexico address many of the structural issues that were addressed in the past and which continue to haunt many Mexican communities today. How will you work to leverage those skills to help Mexico during its transformation to an adversarial system? And what do you think should be the biggest priorities in terms of addressing procedure and due process in Mexico? Senator, thank you for that, uh, that, that question. And, and uh, I do come to this, uh, this job, if confirmed, with uh, 30 years of uh, legal practice under my belt. Uh, and uh, certainly a profound commitment to uh, basic values of due process and fairness and respect for the rule of law. Uh, these are issues that Mexico, uh, as you noted in your question, has been working on. Uh, they have made some significant steps in recent years to uh, reform their own internal justice system. I think those kind of efforts are critical to uh, increasing the, the uh, security and prosperity within Mexico, and if confirmed, would certainly draw on my legal background and my connections in the U.S. legal community, judges, prosecutors, state attorneys general, uh, the, the, the entire panoply to offer Mexico whatever uh, partnership we can as they work to develop their own institutions. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you mention also state attorneys general. When I was an attorney general in the 90s, we actually would detail several people to Mexico. I think other border states did the same thing of our four border states in order to try to help them with these issues of moving uh, to a different type of judiciary. So I think, you know, they're also a very important uh, partner in this. Um, the um, incoming or new Mexican administration has made combating corruption a major issue. This is, of course, a very important issue for U.S. companies doing business or investing in Mexico. How will you address corruption in Mexico? Uh, Senator, as you uh, noted in your question, uh, the Mexican government itself has, has focused on issues of corruption that, that they have had in that country and they have in other countries as well. Uh, certainly, uh, I will make it a priority to uh, let the Mexican authorities and people understand that we stand uh, ready, willing, and able to be a partner with Mexico, uh, if asked, to work with them in this area, which is so important to uh, the development of their economy because uh, corruption issues are a huge deterrent to economic uh, prosperity. Uh, and at the end of the day, a strong 
stable and prosperous Mexico is very much in the interest of the United States. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Menendez. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Congratulations to all of the nominees and their nominations. Uh, let me start with you, Mr. Lando. Uh, I appreciate you came by and visited with me. We had a good conversation, I thought. And I appreciated hearing your Spanish and making sure it's for real. Uh, so, uh, es de veras, Senador. Le puedo decir al Presidente del Comité que es de verdad. Last month, uh, I co-sponsored the Fentanyl Sanctions Act with Leader Schumer because I, like many Americans, are concerned about the massive amounts of fentanyl and heroin that is coming to the United States and the catastrophic effect that it's having on Americans. Now, the President claims that building a wall on the Mexican border will help address the flow of drugs coming into our country, but the problem is, uh, I want to ask you, are you aware that the Drug Enforcement Administration's 2018 National Drug Threat Assessment has repeatedly reported that the majority of illegal drugs coming from Mexico into the United States are coming through our legal points of entry? Senator, we need a holistic approach to the border that allows for uh, trade to go, for people to be able to cross, uh, and certainly one of my uh, priorities would be to do what I can to improve the efficiency uh, of uh, the border, uh, efficiency in a way that also uh, promotes our security. And as you noted, uh, there is a very significant uh, issue of fentanyl coming over the border, as well as other illegal drugs. Uh, and uh, you know, certainly uh, I am aware that a large percentage of the fentanyl comes through legal points of entry. Okay. So uh, as such, uh, will you commit, if you're confirmed, to working with me and other members of this committee to advance a comprehensive solution that addresses uh, all the steps in the production and trafficking process uh, so that we can uh, try to meet this challenge. Absolutely. Are you aware that Mexico is the second largest uh, um, uh, market for the United States goods and services in the world? Yes, Senator. In the world? In the world. Now, uh, as such, our trade with Mexico then is incredibly important uh, in our economic interests uh, as well. And so that's something I hope you're going to pay attention to. Uh, a group of Democratic colleagues and I introduced the Central American Reform and Enforcement Act, which proposes, I think, responsible solutions to address the root causes driving individuals to flee their home countries and to strengthen our own mechanisms to ensure fairness and efficiency for those who do reach our border. In that context, I'd like to ask you the following. Do you agree that migration from Central America's Northern Triangle is a complex issue? that requires a multifaceted solution that tackles both strengthening our own mechanisms while also addressing the root causes that drive individuals to flee? Yes, Senator. Do you agree that Mexico plays a key role in addressing issues of migration from Central America? Yes, Senator. Uh, President Lopez Obrador has expressed an interest in working with the United States to address the root causes driving migration from Central America. Will you work with our partners in Mexico on these issues? Absolutely, Senator. Um, okay. Now, uh, I am concerned uh, about the confidence gap that exists. You and I discussed this a little bit. Uh, in uh, the, the poll last year by the Pew Research Center, an overwhelming majority of respondents in Mexico, 78% in fact, said they had no confidence at all 
uh, with reference to uh, what the administration would do when it comes to global affairs. And uh, negative views like this only increase the political cost for Mexican officials to work closely with the United States on a wide range of policies, which we need them to work with us. How do you plan to address this confidence gap, and how will you convince Mexican officials to cooperate with you and U.S. counterparts uh, when you have this environment in which you're walking into? Senator, I have tremendous respect for Mexico's history, its culture, its people, and certainly if I were to be confirmed, I would want to uh, very uh, aggressively pursue a program of public diplomacy so that Mexican, the Mexican people and government would understand uh, our positions, our, uh, where we're coming from. Uh, and uh, I see public diplomacy as absolutely critical to the mission of a successful ambassador and would use all of the tools at my disposal. Uh, and certainly, uh, my family and I can't think of anything we would rather do than uh, enjoy living in Mexico and, and experiencing the country and the, the hospitality of the Mexican people. And, and lastly, um, uh, will you commit uh, to uh, uh, myself and to the committee that if you are confirmed that you will, uh, when called upon, uh, give uh, honest and accurate information about circumstances in Mexico when you are called upon to do so and work with us when we have some legislative ideas to get your perspectives on it? Absolutely, Senator, and I look forward, if confirmed, to uh, welcoming you and other members of this committee to Mexico. Okay. Mr. Chairman, I, don't, uh, I have one or two other questions, and I don't know what the appropriate timing is. Uh, okay, thank you. Uh, I don't want the rest of you feel that I've left you out. So, uh, Mr. Pedroso, uh, earlier this year, an IDB bank meeting in China fell apart when the Chinese government refused to accredit Venezuelan interim President Wang Guaido's governor to attend the meeting. Uh, as I understand it, the IDB lost millions of dollars in the last-minute cancellation of the event. What lessons should the United States take away from these events, and what does it say about Chinese engagement in the hemisphere and at the IDB? Uh, thank you for the question, Senator. I think it says that China is not yet fully committed to playing by international rules. And I think it is an example of a phenomenon that we have seen elsewhere, and it was personified in that decision by the Chinese to refuse entry to a duly acknowledged and accepted governor of an international institution. Their failure to honor their commitment as a host country, I think, shows that they're not yet willing to abide by the international rules surrounding multilateral organizations. And I think we've seen other examples where they're not willing to abide. And so as such, I hope at the IDB you're going to take that into consideration. I know we want their money in the bank, but by the same token, they have to live under the rules that all of us live under. Absolutely, Senator. Okay. And finally, for Ms. Bates and Ms. Norquist. Uh, I'm increasingly concerned that the United States is not well positioned to engage in economic statecraft for the 21st century, including promoting U.S. jobs, businesses, and economic interests, engaging in development financing for infrastructure and other needs, including climate change-related resiliency, and setting standards for emergent technologies in the digital economy, areas where we lead the world, but if we are not at the table, then others write the standards. Uh, can you share with me how you view your role and your institution's role if you are confirmed 
in helping to renew and replenish U.S. economic statecraft instruments? What do you see as the biggest challenges? What do you see as the biggest opportunities? Thank you, Senator, for that question. Um, economic statecraft, as previously defined and, and as will be defined, as I'm sure in ongoing conversations, is extremely important. Uh, good economic policies that we promote to the rest of the, the world through an institution such as the OECD help to grow the American economy, help, help create jobs, help create a foundation for strong economic relationships between, between our country and others. Um, I look forward to working with the committee in that capacity um, uh, to, to look for new ways uh, as well as to um, work within the institution if confirmed to define the goals that would be appropriate, uh, as I said, in conversation with the committee um, for economic statecraft. Within the mission itself, I think there are a number of tools. Uh, there are a number of committees within the OECD where we can promote U.S. views on the best practices and best approaches to uh, foster an environment that, that creates uh, sustainable economic growth. Ms. Norquist. Thank you, Senator. Um, so uh, I'm a huge believer in the mission of the World Bank, uh, and uh, the U.S. is, uh, you know, the largest contributor to the World Bank, and um, we have a long history with the bank, one of its founding members, and obviously the president is, uh, is an American. Uh, and so I hope to continue to represent the United States' interests as, as best as possible and um, be a good steward of taxpayer dollars uh, while uh, representing the U.S. interests at the bank. Um, the U.S. also has taken a leading role in uh, the environmental and social framework and um, pushing for anti-corruption efforts. And I also believe that the, um, the reforms uh, that would be part of the uh, increased capital uh, package would really uh, improve things at the bank. I think the bank is not a perfect entity, but it is certainly better than uh, most of the Chinese loans that are out there that are um, forcing uh, uh, borrowers into uh, bankruptcy and then the Chinese are seizing the assets. Well, I look forward to both of you and your institutions uh, having some sense of uh, how do we meet the, you know, Chinese investment is manipulative at best and coercive at worst. Uh, and so I, I look forward to see how we use these institutions, not only as a counter to compete successfully against them so they don't undermine uh, countries that ultimately cannot afford uh, the, what, what they get from the Chinese under the terms and then go into deep debt but also how do we use our tools and international financial institutions uh, to ultimately promote uh, the U.S. interests abroad? And uh, I'd like to hear a little bit more from you on that one, uh, uh, maybe for the record. Senator Cardin. Uh, thank you. Uh, Mr. Norquist, let me follow up on this point. The recapitalization reform. You indicate the reform is to concentrate more on the less developed countries, which I agree with completely, carrying out the mission of the bank, which is to make sure we have stable regimes, to reduce poverty, to help women, which I strongly support, and to reduce the uh, violence. Absolutely agree with those types of reforms that would lead us to those conclusions. But there's one thing to say that we're gonna do it, it's another thing, in fact, to be able to be accountable in this area. Uh, you mentioned anti-corruption several times. To me, corruption is the 
uh, fuel for instability in these countries. We have a lot of less developed countries that don't have sophisticated governments. They may even have resources. Those resources are used to fuel corruption rather than to help the people. So how do you see the reforms at the bank actually being carried out in, in practice to help less developed countries develop the type of governance that can benefit the people of that country for a more stable uh, um, life. Thank you, Senator. Um, uh, one thing that I have not really mentioned is that um, the whole idea of the World Bank is to help stabilize these countries so that private capital can come in. Uh, and I think that private capital is not going to come into a country that is, uh, you know, endemically riddled with corruption. So uh, the World Bank actually does have um, an inspection panel and, a, and, and an ombudsman uh, that they are actually increasing the funding towards those um, two entities to make sure that there is accountability and that there isn't corruption. Um, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the JAM versus IFC case, but obviously that was a project uh, in India that, that you know, went awry. Um, the same thing happened in Uganda, and, uh, and the warning signs were there, but there was not enough accountability in the bank um, uh, to ensure that, you know, it didn't happen. Uh, right now, I think that those accountability mechanisms are much stronger and, and should hopefully prevent that in the future. Um, I would say I'm a little bit of a research nerd. Uh, there was a great paper last year in the Journal of Economic Perspectives uh, that actually compared uh, World Bank loans in Africa to um, Chinese-led loans in Africa, and they found that the Chinese loans not only had zero positive economic impact on the area, but they were um, corrupt and they spread the corruption exactly around where that uh, project had taken place. I think I'll challenge you on one point, and that is there are extractive industries that go into corrupt countries because they know they can work out their deals and get the minerals that they want. And we've tried to take action to prevent that from happening. So I don't think we can just say that private investment won't go into corrupt regimes, because we've seen that happen over and over again. But I do agree with you, stable regimes need to be able to fight corruption, because they won't stay stable. So I, I, I guess my, my question is, what in the reforms give us confidence that, in fact, we will see a commitment in the less developed countries to deal with good governance? So I do know that, um, particularly in the um, in the African region, um, the majority of World Bank loans go towards you know administrative, which is really focusing on um, developing strong governance tools and and teaching these countries you know how to fight corruption. Um, so there are mechanisms in place, and um, certainly, Senator, you know, should you confirm me, I, I pledge to you to to work to focus more um, of the World Bank resources on on that issue. And would you uh, commit to keep this committee informed in regards, to, assuming the reforms go forward, as to how you're making progress or not making progress in dealing with corruption and good governance in less developed countries uh, as a result of the recapitalization, the result of these efforts? Absolutely, Senator. Uh, we'll hold you to that. Okay. Mr. Pedroza, you mentioned um, the, the problems of fighting corruption in our hemisphere. And that goes well beyond Venezuela. We have many democratic governments that are plagued with corruption in our hemisphere. So how do you see your role uh, in development assistance dealing with rooting out corruption so we have less impunity and more safety for the people in our region to also help us, by the way, in regards to the migration issues? 
Senator, thank you for the question. I entirely agree uh, with your last statement that that will help us with the migration issues. As you know and as you mentioned at the beginning of your opening statement, uh, one of the IDB's signature cross-cutting issues is anti-corruption, transparency, and rule of law. It means that every project that comes to the IDB board gets scored as to whether or not it is actually having some impact on that issue. I think that's vitally important. I think the work that we do to strengthen institutional capacities at the ministries um, is vitally important and it's something that we need to continue to do. I think we stand at a point of enormous opportunity. I think the light that's been shed on corruption in the region by the series of scandals that rocked it from Odebrecht to the Cuaderno scandal in Argentina put us in a position where the governments are finally, many of them, willing to face this issue, which is not an easy one um, for government officials in these countries. Sometimes facing this issue means putting relatives and friends in legal jeopardy, but it's important work that has to be done, and I look forward to continuing to work within the IDB system to make sure that we're a part of that solution. And again, I would ask, as, ask the other witnesses, please keep us informed as to your success or lack of success in that regard. As I mentioned earlier, we are working on legislation here to try to identify good best practices so that countries know that they're being watched on their efforts to fight corruption. And our bilateral relations should always be aimed at reducing corruption and the mechanisms to provide for stability uh, against corruption. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Well, we want to thank all four of you for being here. Um, the record will remain open for 48 hours. If you get questions for the record, the quicker you can respond to them, the faster the chairman uh, can move on to the business hearing, which is the next step in this process. But again, I want to thank you all for, for giving us the time, for your willingness to serve. And with that, uh, the hearing is adjourned.